welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, you alone are the living and true God. You are infinite in your being and you are perfect. You are invisible, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. Father, you are most wise and most holy and most free. You're most absolute working all things according to the counsel of your most holy will for your own glory. God, you are loving and generous and merciful and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Father, you are also just. You hate all sin. Your judgments are terrifying. And Father, we are sinners. And so we confess this morning that we have sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed and the things we've done and the things we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so we're truly sorry and we ask for forgiveness for the sake of your son, that you would have mercy on us and forgive us our sins, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We thank you, Lord, that you have so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, so that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you that you welcome us here through the body and blood of your Son into friendship with you. We thank you that by faith in Christ that we have been adopted as your sons and daughters, and we gladly enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise this morning, giving thanks to your holy name. And Father, we would desire now to be fed by your word. We ask that you would bless us by feeding us with this word and this table. You alone, God, can order our unruly wills and affections. We are a sinful people. We need our hearts changed. We want to love the things you command. We want to desire the things you promise. We want our hearts to be so fixed on Christ, the source of all our joy, that we can withstand the temptations in this world. And Father, on this Father's Day, we also pray that you would give a special blessing to the fathers here, that you would give them strength and wisdom and discernment and love in your Holy Spirit to lead their families well as you've called them. And we thank you, Lord, that you are a generous Father, that you are so much more willing to hear our prayers than we are to make prayers to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all that happens this morning. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say, Amen. Okay, I messed up the Lord's Prayer. That's a start. So this morning, we're starting in a doctrine series, and uh, we're calling this doctrine series, which we're going to do the whole summer. We're going to do a series on doctrine, and we're calling it a clearer vision of the Almighty. And so what we're planning on doing here is getting our spiritual eyes checked, right, so that we could have a clearer vision of who God is and what he's doing, and uh, we're going to do that by digging into the Word and looking at different subjects and what God says about each subject. This morning, we're going to talk about the attributes of God, and we're going to do that for a few weeks here. And guys, nothing could be more important, because people will be like, you know, 
I really like those practical series, right? I like those series that gives me seven ways to be a better father, you know, six ways to be a better employee, things like that. Guys, nothing could be more important than having an accurate vision of who God is, right? Uh, Both for our lives and for our mission as God's people. Like for our own sake, we're always tempted, guys, to reimagine God in our own image, aren't we? You know, God made us in his own image, and ever since then, we've been trying to make him in our image. And so what we often, you'll hear people say is things like, well, you know, I like to think of God like this. You ever talk, have conversations like that? Or somebody says, well, the God I believe in would never do that. The God I believe in would be like this. What are we doing? We're, we're saying, this is what fits with my mind and my desires. But guys, a God that springs from your own mind and desires is by definition an imaginary God. Okay? If he came out of your imagination, he's by definition imaginary. What's the Bible word for that? For an imaginary God. An idol, right? And if we know anything as we go through the Old Testament, it's that God hates idolatry. Um, A.W. Tozer reminds us that an idol in the mind is just as offensive to God as an idol in your hand, right? And many of us have idols in our minds of what we think God is like, and nothing, guys, could be more practical and important than that we would know God rightly. So many of our problems uh, stream from us having low views of God, and so much of our comfort and joy and power in our lives is lost because we have a fuzzy view of God. A lot of it where we've kind of filled in the blanks with things that sounded good to us. And so we have a much lower view of God. We also need to have a clearer vision of God for our own mission. It turns out that part of your mission is to teach people what God's really like. A lot of times we start with like sin and hell and the gospel and kind of dig into that. And we're talking about God with somebody that has no idea what you're talking about. Guys, don't assume that when you say the word God that they're thinking the same thing as you are. For most people in our culture, when they think of the word God, they think of an old man in the sky that sends good people to heaven and bad people to hell and occasionally does a miracle or two, but pretty much stays out of your business. That's the typical view of God. And so when you start talking to people about the gospel, you need to really maybe start with some of these attributes. God is eternal. God is omnipresent. You know, like back up and go like, this is what God's like before we start digging into how you need to respond to him. Some people, guys, have such a low view of God that it's good they don't believe in him, okay? It's actually better that they don't believe in God if that's their view of God. And sometimes I'll say something like this to people. I'll say, you know what? Tell me about the God you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in him either, right? That's an important thing to say. I don't believe in God. Well, tell me about what that God would be like that you don't believe in. He's probably not the God of the Bible anyway, Part of our wonderful mission we have is that we get to tell people what God's like. And God is glorious and beautiful, so you guys had the best job in the world. The best job in the world to go out there and tell people what God's like. The Belgic Confession, which I love with all my heart, says this, We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single, simple, spiritual being we call God. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just and good, and the overflowing source of all goodness. That's the God you get to tell people about, which is an awesome, awesome job that you have. Now, before we get into the attributes of God, it's important to realize that God is incomprehensible. You say, well, then that seems like a problem. You know, we're going to have a series and talk about what God's like, and he's incomprehensible. The Psalms say, Psalm 145 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. This might be a difficult task then. It also says in Psalm 147, Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God is incomprehensible, meaning that God cannot be fully understood. Okay, and Because it turns out that if God was going to fully communicate his whole essence to another person, that other person would have to be his equal. 
And there is no equal to him, right? He is incomprehensible. He is infinite. We're finite, so we can never know everything that he is or understand all that he is. But that doesn't mean we can't know him truly, okay? This is an important distinction. God's incomprehensible, but he's knowable. God, it can never be known fully, but he can be known truly. He can be known accurately. And he gives us bits of knowledge about himself in his word, okay? In love, this incomprehensible God that you can never understand and you can never search out actually has given us true things about himself so that we can know him and love him and obey him and have a relationship with him. So he is incomprehensible and in that you can't take them all in, but he is knowable because he's in love revealed certain things about himself in the word. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there's secret things. There's a whole bunch of who God is that we will never be able to fully take in. And then there's revealed things. And the thing is, guys, is we want to go around collecting as many of those revealed things in his word as we possibly can. We are greedy to get all the revealed things we can and to know God as well as we can, right? We are not content with a fuzzy view of God. We want the clearest picture of God so that we can enjoy him maximally and serve him happily. And that happens when we know him, okay? So God's incomprehensible. Um, and you know, guys, that actually gives us something to look forward to in the world to come because some people actually worry about heaven being boring. Um, it goes on forever and things like that. It's never going to be boring because we can never fully take in who God is. And so eon after eon for eternity, we're going to see new vistas of his beauty and glory, new things about him. You know how you feel when you learn something new about the Lord and the word about his person and you get that, what do you, how do you feel? You feel, mm, you feel happy, you feel excited, you feel alive. Imagine that going on over and over and over again for eternity. Always something new. Your joy will not decrease. It will always be increasing in heaven as you see new things about him. Because he's infinite and incomprehensible and you're finite, you will actually need eternity to take him in. And there will always be more of him. Isn't that good news? That's good news. So we're going to learn a few things about him this morning. We're going to look at what's called attributes. Attributes are things that God has revealed in his word that are true of him. And they're usually organized into two lists, incommunicable ones, which are ones that he doesn't share at all with us, and communicable ones, which are ones that we can kind of share, like grace and mercy and things like that we can kind of share. Think communicable disease. He can spread these to us, right? It's a good kind of infection through the Holy Spirit where he imparts some of his nature to us. But this morning, we're going to look at the incommunicable attributes. So the ones that are most foreign to us. And the one I want to start with is God is unchanging. God's character and his eternal plans do not change. And this is uh, theologically called immutability. And this is what it says in Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away. And then he says this, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Or Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. God's character and his eternal plans don't change. He doesn't change in his character. And the reason why God doesn't ever change in his character is because his character is already perfect, right? He, he can never change in his character because he started off perfect. I mean, he never really started off. We'll talk about he's eternal in a little bit. But he is perfect already. So any change in him would actually be a bad thing. You guys all change. We can all change. And we can change for the better or for the worse, right? Somebody says, you changed, Depends on the tone, whether that's a good thing or not, right? Be like, man, you changed. 
That's bad, right? Oh, you've changed. That's good, right? You can change for the better or for the worse, but God, if he was going to change because he's perfect, it would only be a bad thing. So God doesn't ever change in his character. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The fact that he doesn't change is immensely good news. Um, God's eternal plans don't change. You know why God's eternal plans don't change? Because they were perfect already, okay? Just like his character, his eternal plans were perfect. And God never gets surprised with new information so that he needs to decide like, oh, I need a course correction here. Things have changed. No, he sees everything ahead of time. His eternal plans are perfect. He can never encounter new information that makes him, gives him good reason to change his plans. Now, a couple of nuances to this is that God does execute that eternal plan with different promises and different um, commands and things like that in different times. We call them covenants. So God throughout time has had different ways, that different terms and different promises he's given to his people throughout time. We call those covenants. But guys, that's not God changing his eternal plans because he always planned to do that. He always planned to work through different covenants throughout time. Um, when God used different covenants throughout scripture, it wasn't like trial and error. Like, okay, I'm going to try this thing in the garden. Don't eat the tree. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, let's try this with Noah. No, no, that didn't work either. Oh, okay, Moses, here's what we're going to do now. Oh, man, they messed that up too. That, it's not God doing trial and error. He is actually um, showing his unchanging character and his unchanging plan by an unfolding, intricate, pre-planned drama. It's an intricate, pre-planned drama, right? Uh, so God's covenants are showing that. Um, so God's not changing even through those covenants. Um, second thing is God does sometimes change his apparent actions in response to our actions. Nineveh repents and doesn't get destroyed. Moses pleads with God over Israel, and God relents from destroying Israel. Um, so God does respond to our actions, especially our prayers, but that's also not God, God not changing either. That's also not a change in God's eternal plan either, because God has eternally planned to work through our prayers. Yeah, he's, he's that impressive. He is eternally planned to work through our prayers. God has designed prayer as a way for us to take part in his eternal plans. That should motivate us to prayer, actually, guys. God has designed our prayers to be an integral part of his eternal plan. So we have a real relationship with God. He really responds to our prayers. And yet everything he does is actually according to his eternal plan. Isn't that amazing? And the reason why God's eternal plans never change, you've got to remember, is they were perfect from the beginning. There's no need. He will not change plans that are perfect, and he only makes perfect plans. And as, as covenant people, guys, we rest our future security in the fact that he doesn't change in his character or his plans. Let, look at the rest of uh, Malachi 3.6. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? The reason why we will not be destroyed if we're in Christ is because his character and his plans never change. It's his unchangingness. It turns out that it's God's faithfulness, not ours, that, that makes our future secure, right? If our eternal security were up to us being faithful, we would be consumed. We would be doomed. But because we're in covenant with a God that doesn't change, we are assured of never-ending grace. Just as it says in uh, 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God doesn't change. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, God's called what? the rock. You can count on him. He doesn't change. He's not described as, you know, 
the, the puffy cloud or something like that. It's described as the rock, the one who doesn't change. Second, God is omnipresent. God is present in his creation everywhere, but he's not limited to space, okay? And this is one that you don't share. We, like all the other creatures, like angels and animals and things like that, we are limited to one location. That's true of angels too. Satan can't be everywhere. Demons can't be everywhere. Limited to a location. We're limited to a location. We try not to be. One of the ways we try not to be is our smartphones. You know, we try to be kind of omnipresent, present everywhere. That doesn't make us present everywhere. That makes us less present in the one place we physically are, right? And that's what that does. But God, guys, is present everywhere at once. Uh, as Kenny read, it's so cool. I didn't ask him to, and this is perfect. Uh, Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it already. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the winds, wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness will cover me and the light about me be as night, even darkness is not dark to you and the night is bright as day for darkness is as light to you. As we live, because God is omnipresent, we live what, what they call in Latin, quorum Deo, which is we live always before the face of God. Always before the face of God. Now, that can come as good news or bad news to you, depending on how you feel about God. I, I think it's very helpful sometimes to read Psalm 139 and ask yourself how that makes you feel. It's a test, right? There's a Psalm 139 test. When you read Psalm 139 and he says, you hem me in before and behind, is it good news or bad news? Is the fact that you can't flee from him good news or bad news? Does it feel like Big Brother from 1984? Or does it feel like your favorite person that you never have to leave? It's a test of your heart. You read through it. It's really interesting. Depending on how you feel about God, you will feel different about that psalm. Do I cherish sin or do I cherish God? Adam and Eve cherished God until they sinned, right? And then they fled from the presence of God. God is present everywhere at once. But God is not limited to space. Check this out. Um, 1 Kings 8.27 says they had dedicated the temple. They said this. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house we've built for you. God isn't just everywhere. He actually transcends space. Space can't contain him. Because actually our universe is a, is a definite size. We don't know the exact size. Some people say it's expanding. But it's got a certain size. Our universe is not infinite. And um, let's say our universe is expanding. God is not getting bigger with the universe. God transcends it. He's bigger than the universe. He's bigger than his creation. He's outside of his creation. He's infinite. The universe is finite. And he doesn't just fill creation. He extends beyond it. He is before it. Before there was even any space, there was God. That's an amazing thing to think about. But he's not limited to space. Third, God's eternal. Your mind's hurting yet? This one will hurt. God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. Time is something that God creates and sustains, but he isn't confined to it. Take a look at Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You, you return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man, 
For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past as a watch in the night. God has always existed. In all creatures, angels, humans, everything had a beginning. And they continue to exist only because God ordains and determines that they continue to exist. You exist not because you have to, but because God is actually maintaining your existence. Isn't that amazing? And God, there was never a time when there, there was no God, when God didn't exist. He existed before time. You think about what was he doing? God was actually, before he created the world, we know, delighting in the three persons of the Trinity. No space, no time, no matter, just God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about it in John 17, 5. He said, um, that he, he said, give me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he lived in a relationship of glory. Um, John 17, 24, he said, um, he, he was asking his disciples would see his glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And so there's this love between the three persons of the Trinity. And, um, and, and this was before anything was created, before there was even time. So God creates time. And God sustains time. He's created time not because he needs it. He's created it to be a place in which he can meet us and he can have a relationship with, it, with us, somewhere for us to live. We need time. Um, some people talk about, like, you know, um, in heaven there's no time. I don't believe that's true at all. I think if you look at the end of Revelation, it talks about like, the, the trees of life having fruit in different seasons. So there's definitely some sort of a chronology going on. So heaven is actually unending time. He's created time so that he can give us somewhere to live because we are creatures that need time. And so that he can come into time and relate to us, that he can come into time and save us within a time range, that he can show us a story over time of who he is. But he doesn't need it. And he's not confined to it. Look at uh, when it says in Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years is in your sight as but yesterday when it passes, or as a watch in the night. God is not bound to time any more than he's bound to space. So God can be at all points of space at once. And so he's not limited in the three dimensions. He's also not limited in the fourth dimension. He can be in all places of time at once and see them equally vividly. How do your brains feel? Tell me, how do you feel? Be honest, right? Um, okay, he's not bound by it. He's not bound by space, he's not bound by time. He's not constrained in the ways we are. God sustains time, pervades time, and is fully present in all points of time. Fourth, God is independent. I actually really love this one. God is independent or self-sufficient. Uh, the theological term is aseity. God does not need us or anything else in the creation, yet we do bring him joy. But he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. He doesn't need anything in the creation. Acts 17, 24, Paul says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by man as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and all things. He is not served as though he needs anything. And I think that's something that we can be really confused about. All man-made religion basically assumes that God needs something from us right? We give God something he needs, he gives something we need. You know, the Israelites made that mistake in Israel when they thought that their sacrifices somehow bought off God or paid off God. God said this to him in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the whole world and its fullness are mine. You know, because they're saying, well, we gave you sacrifice and we gave you this. He's like, if I was hungry and I never get hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. I own everything. Isn't that amazing? 
This puts us in a different position, doesn't it? God doesn't need anything outside himself. He doesn't need matter. He doesn't need space. He doesn't need anything creation. He doesn't even need us. And this is a huge difference between um, God and his creatures. All humans and animals and angels, we, we all need things to survive, we, right? We all need God. We all uh, continue to exist only because he wills us to exist, right? And I think in our culture, we get a little confused about this. We think that God exists because we will him to exist. Have you ever noticed that? When you talk to people, you get this impression that somehow they believe that if they choose to stop believing in God, that somehow there won't be one. Right? That if I choose for God not to exist, if I you know, choose not to believe in them, then somehow he doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way with the rest of reality, guys. Like, God exists whether we want him to exist or not. We, we can't, like a child, close our eyes hoping that, you know, that somebody will disappear. He doesn't disappear. He's still there. Um, God is somebody that we will always have to deal with. Always. He exists. He has to exist. He won't stop existing. If everyone in the world became an atheist, his existence is not challenged. Right? <laughs> okay? Um, our existence is dependent on God's existence, not the other way around. Acts 17.25 says this, He himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. And we are, not we are not necessary to God's existence. We're also not necessary to his happiness. I think this might challenge you guys because, you know, you guys are special, okay? And you are special to God. But we, he does not depend on us for his happiness. I think this is very important. Um, God was completely happy before creation. Like I said, in the Trinity, complete delight, complete joy, complete self-sufficiency, enjoying one another from all eternity. Um, creation was not because it was like, man, we're kind of tired of this. We need to find something to do. We need some people to have relationships with. That wasn't it. It's more like that. he's like a fountain and his joy and his um, joy and meaning and fullness overflowed out onto the ground and he created the world. His, his, this world and all of us have been created out of an overflow of fullness and joy in the Trinity, not a lack. I think that's really important for us to see. And though God doesn't need us, he has chosen to love us and to pay the ultimate price for us. And, and here I'm going to bring it around and, and help you out a little bit by saying that precisely because he doesn't need us, he's able to love us in a very special way. Okay? So God is not looking for something from you to fill a need in him. We have all the needs, and he is so loving that his desire has been to show us love by paying the ultimate price, price of his own son, to love us and engage in a relationship with us. And I think it should actually mean more to us um, and show his love for us more in the fact that he doesn't need us, right? Okay, let me, let me just uh, transition this way and say, without Christ, the God I just described is terrifying, Right? Without Christ, the God I just described is terrifying. I'll show you. Revelation 20, verse 11 says this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up its dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God, notice here, guys, God's omnipresence. 
In verse 11, he, said, um, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and the presence of earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. What, what happens when the Lord returns is all illusion that we could hide somewhere in the material creation from God is gone. It vanishes. It's a weird visual here where, you know, heaven and earth flee away. That all of a sudden, all I'm dealing with is God, and I'm here, and here's God. There's nowhere to hide. Revelation 6, they're running around saying, let the mountains fall on me. and stuff like that. There's nowhere to hide, right? Just you and God. And you know what, guys? It's always been that way. It's always been that way. It's always been you and God. It's always been the God who sees at all times, right? But at that moment, we're going to have perfect clarity that it's always been that way, that it's always been God and me. And, you know, whatever ideas I had of, you know, saying that God doesn't exist or, you know, kind of downplaying him or whatever, I'll, I'll realize it was all just a really ridiculous game. It's just me and God. Notice also his eternality. Notice in uh, verse 12, he says, Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. He talks about the sea giving up its dead and death giving up its dead. See his eternality here because no passing of time can separate us from this judge, not even death. Right? God will never be someone with, that we don't have to deal with. God will never be someone, uh, he will always continue to exist. And so will we. And so if we haven't made peace with God in this life, we'll always be his enemies. And he never fades away, and neither do we. Constantly at, at enmity with him as his enemies. So the question would be, how do we make peace with this God, right? Notice also his unchangeableness. In, ver in verse 12, he talks about the books being opened, and he's judging. Notice what doesn't happen at the judgment. Negotiation. There's no negotiation. There's no like, you know, hey, you know, I know I did this. And you know what else there isn't in this particular situation? Is there's not God saying something like, you know, I know what I commanded, but I was kind of in a stern mood when I wrote up those laws. And you know what? It's fine. He doesn't do that. Why? Because he's unchangeable, right? He's unchangeable. His law is unchangeable. I would just ask you guys, I would just hope that you are not banking on somehow that God's standard something other than what he's repeatedly said here. I think there's that thing in the back of the mind like, yeah, but, you know, he's gracious, he's generous, and, you know, maybe we'll get there, and you'd be like, you know what? I was kind of stern when I said that. Let's just, he doesn't do that. He's unchanging, right? It will never happen because God doesn't change. Uh, notice also his aseity, that he has no needs. You know, when he comes to this judgment throne, you don't see this kind of let's make a deal, right? You don't see negotiation because negotiation requires that both parties have needs, right? If you're going to negotiate something, buying of a house or whatever, both parties have needs, and so you play on that. Well, you need this, I need that. Let's negotiate. There's no negotiation at the judgment because we have nothing we can exchange for our sins. We have nothing to offer him, right? He has no needs. Unlike the gods of man-made religions, the God who exists can't be paid off. He can't be bribed. Um, anything we might try to offer to him, he already owns. Remember Psalm 50? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you the whole world's mine. Negotiation depends on leverage. We have no leverage with God. Right? Without Christ, this God is a terrifying judge. You'd be far better off to come before you know, the gods of man-made religion or something like that, and you'd have some play, but there's no play here, right? Now, you ready for good news? The good news is, is that the same attributes that make God a terrifying judge make him a mighty savior. The exact same attributes that make God a terrifying judge make him a mighty Savior. He is an unchanging Savior. In the Gospels, we see the unchanging God send his own Son to save us just as he planned before the foundation of the world. 
You guys realize this? Ascending Jesus was planned before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake. Even before God created the world, He planned to save us sinners through Jesus by the cross. Isn't that amazing? And if you're a Christian this morning, you can know that God chose to save you specifically before the foundation of the world. It says that in Ephesians 1. Check it out. Ephesians 1, 3. You won't believe it unless you see it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then notice this. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Chose you before the foundation of the world. Is that exciting? Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Listen to this. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Right? That's his unchanging eternal plans for you. Right? And so the same things that make God a terrifying judge make him a mighty savior. And this son, Jesus, has met all of God's unchanging law demands for you. All those law demands that I said God is not going to fudge on whatsoever, Jesus met them all, okay? We're not counting on the fact that we meet them, and we're certainly not counting on the fact that he lowers them. We're counting on the fact that Jesus met them in our place, right? Jesus met all the law's demands for you if you trust in him. And now we're his covenant children, and now we experience his unchanging grace, right? I, the Lord, don't change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. If our responses to God were what determined his faithfulness to us, we'd be doomed, guys. We'd be doomed a long time ago. How long could you stay a Christian if it was dependent on your obedience? Yeah, you wouldn't make it out the door. You know, I received Jesus and, you know, people that believe you lose your salvation, you know, like, if that's what you believe, then, you, you know, good luck having it ever. You know, it seems like it lasts like five seconds, right? But no, because we're in covenant with God. He loves us because of Jesus. He's also an omnipresent Savior. This is kind of weird. So omnipresent God, God the Son, becomes a man and takes on a discerned location. Isn't that amazing? That the omnipresent Son of God actually takes on flesh and, and, and has a location and has an address. And his address is in the poor part of town, in this like nowhere town that nobody would have heard of unless Jesus had grown up there, right? It's amazing. Um, in, first, in John 1, 14, it says, The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is exactly what God has always been like. Isn't that cool? Because one of the things that goes with being omnipresent is invisibility. That's actually one of his qualities, too. He's invisible for the most, usually, right? And, but Jesus has made him visible. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at what God has always been like. I think sometimes we think like, okay, you know, that's the nicer side of God, right? That's the nicer side of God, and there's this other side of God that didn't come in Jesus. Well, when you read Jesus and you read his teaching, there's plenty of judgment in those teachings. I don't know if you guys have read the Synoptic Gospels especially, but there's plenty of judgment there, right? This is how God has always been. If you're attracted to Jesus, guess what? You are attracted to the God of the universe, which is awesome. He's also an eternal Savior. In the Gospels, we see God, the eternal one, the one who can never die, become mortal. Why? So he could be killable. Jesus took on a body to become killable. Isn't that amazing? 
The eternal Son of God became killable. Why? Because he's taking the death penalty our sins deserve. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the eternal God, dies. But here's what's cool. Death couldn't hold him. Revelation 1.17 says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. It's a kind of life, guys, that he now gives to his people who trust in him. That you could have the kind of life that doesn't stay dead. You will die, but you won't stay dead if you trust in Jesus. He's a savior who has no needs. In the Gospels, we see God who has no needs meeting our greatest needs. Remember in Acts, he said, God is not served with human hands as though he needed anything. You might need to just write that down and look at that over and over again every day. Because chances are, you do not believe that about God. God is not served with human hands as though he needs anything. Even you guys on your best day, you, like, you want to help God, right? Because he needs you. God is not served as, with human hands as though he needs anything. Right? And so this God comes, and listen to what Jesus says. This totally echoes it. Mark uh, 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be what? Served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel is completely different than the path of religion. All religions are basically giving God something to get something. Right? But in the gospel, the real God who has no needs comes to meet all our greatest needs. The gospel is really God served you. Shocking, isn't it? That's what Jesus said here. He said he didn't come to be served. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many, to give it for you. In the gospel, he meets our greatest needs. He's come to give us righteousness. Remember in, in Revelation 20, he said the books were opened. We can be judged by the books. What was the other one? Yeah, another book was opened. It was the book of life, right? So what's that? So we could either be judged by the books, which I take to be the records of human deeds, and in how well we measure up the law. So you can have two aisles. It's like here, books. And your life's in here, and we can flip through it, and God can judge you based on that. Or there's another book. And this is great news. There's another book, the book of life. And those who are written in the book of life, don't go through that line for damnation. They are welcomed into God's presence based on what Jesus did. Isn't that awesome? It's amazing, right? And so... Um, we can either be judged based on what we do or we can be judged on what Jesus did. Guys, that book, that book of life, is a lift, list of names of people who will be admitted into heaven purely on Jesus' merit. It's his guest list. Okay? It's a list that you can enter even today. How do you enter it? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What's repentance? Repentance is when you stop looking to everything else but God to give you true satisfaction and happiness. Right? You stop looking to everything else but God to give you true satisfaction and happiness. That's what sin is. Sin is disobeying God because we believe that we can find life and happiness apart from him. We don't need him. He's not the real path of joy. There's something out there that he said isn't good that you think's better for you. And guys, I hope that as we go through and we look at the attributes of God, you would see how silly that is. Do you want to trade the unchanging, eternal, omnipresent, self-sufficient, independent God for what? For a few images on a screen? For a relationship that he says isn't good for you? For, you know, the nurturing of that grudge or unforgiveness? For that anger that you keep around like a pet? You know, for those, for those, those shady deals that you make that you think you need to have the kind of life you, you feel like you need to have? Like, seriously? You trade God for that? 
Repentance is you stop looking to everything else to make you, give you satisfaction and happiness. And then believe. What's believing? It's trusting in Jesus to make you right with God so you can have full access to all God is. Because, guys, the gospel is about getting God. Okay? The gospel is not just about not going to hell. It is about that. It's not just about going to heaven. It is about that. It's not just about your resurrected body. It is about that. It's about getting God. Like, if you could have heaven... And you could have a resurrected body. You could have all your loved ones there. And you could have no pain and no disease. But there was no God there. Would it be heaven? It wouldn't be. Because what makes heaven heaven is that God is the greatest treasure. He is that overflowing fountain of joy and delight. Psalm 1611 said, God himself is the path of life. In God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's what you get when you receive Christ. And so now in the Lord's Supper... God's inviting all of us to trust, who trust in Christ, to come to the Lord's Supper. And this is a great part of our service every week as we take the bread and the cup. If you're trusting in Jesus, we invite you to do that. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you should really spend some time asking yourself why. What outside those doors is better than having God as your Father, than having God as your Savior, than having Jesus as your treasure? Because I'll tell you guys, being a Christian, like, the cool thing about like knowing the Lord and knowing things about the Lord is, is I could just sit without a book or anything like that, and I could just sit and I could just think about the glory and the beauty of God and just be like completely satisfied. Like he's like that, right? That with the things we know in the word and stuff and we store it up in our hearts, we could just sit and we could just like think about who God is. And it's the most savory, wonderful thing. And that's only a slight little appetizer of what's to come. Like, he gives true joy. And so, if you're trusting in him, come forward and take the bread and the cup during these next couple um, songs. And be reminded of his covenant love for you. Be reminded of the body and blood of Christ. This is the way that you've been made pure and forgiven and made righteous. This is what God has done for you. And what's really cool, too, is to think about the fact that God now delights in you. I mean, I told you that God doesn't need you, but he loves you. The Bible also says that he delights in his people. Isn't that interesting? He delights in you guys. He loves you, and he delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17 says this about you if you're in Christ. And I hope you believe this. I, I pray that you believe this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Do you believe that this morning? That Because you're in Christ, that the Father rejoices over you with gladness. Rejoicing's enough. Rejoicing with gladness is interesting. So like, we're going to rejoice over, I'm going to rejoice over you, and I'm going to add gladness. <laughs> it's cool, right? And it says, he will quiet you by his love, and then listen to this, he will exult over you with loud singing. Do you guys believe that about God? That in Christ, God is a God who delights in you, he rejoices in you with gladness, and he exults over you, loving you, singing over you. You believe in a singing God? You believe in a God that sings over you? You believe in a God that you are so forgiven and accepted and loved and delighted in as his kid that he just sings over you? Right? <laughs> That's something every father in this room has failed to do. <laughs> right? I've failed to do. Um, and it, that's something that God, the Father, does for us. He sings over us. He delights in us. And what's really neat is that verse says, he quiets us with his love. 
So there's a soul quieting that comes from knowing his love for you. This God who's immense and incomprehensible. I don't know where to stop. I'm just kind of trailing off here. Um, Let's pray. Father, you are immortal, invisible, your God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, your great name we praise. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we worship you during these next few songs and as we take the Lord's Supper, that you would quiet us with your love. That you'd fill us with an overwhelming sense of your acceptance and delight. That though we are sinners, you don't see our sin, you see your son. And you're thrilled over us because of him. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, your angels adore you, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, oh help us to see. It's only the splendor of light hideth thee. Lord, help us to see who you are and help us to be transformed by that. Even as Moses came down from the mountain with his face glowing and people bothered by it, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to radiate your presence. In praise in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.